Someone offered this morning to put my hair in a ponytail. (laughs) Well, I wasn't going to call her name, but you know. When I was younger, I always wanted to be like Billy Graham. And uh, I think I'm on my way, at least with the hairdo, you know, with all that curly stuff he had in the back. Uh, I'm not uh, turning into a hippie or anything. I'm just uh, been busy. <laughs> One of these days that you'll have a, a new pastor you won't recognize up here. I'll get it all cut and <laughs> it'll it'll look more normal. Well, I'm just joking, obviously. Uh, as we turn in our Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter seven. It's important, I think, every once in a while to just kind of hit the pause button and to kind of remember where we are because Revelation particularly is one of those books that uh, fast forwards and moves back, fast forwards and moves back. It gives us an overview and then it goes back and explains the fill in details, and and Revelation 7 is one of those sections that is really an interlude. It is uh, designed in the breaking of the seals, the opening of the seals, to, to kind of bring us to a pause as John sees this entire end time period in, pan, in a panoramic sweep. And then as we move into chapter 8, and the seventh seal is broken in 8.1, we move into the judgment of trumpets. And he begins to explain what goes on in the middle of the material in chapter 7. Does that make sense? 7 is like this panorama, it's this overview and the trumpets and actually uh, the bowls fit into the middle of it somewhere. And we'll see that a little more clearly uh, in just a moment. Um, it's a continuation from chapter 6 of the sixth seal. And if you go back in your Bible for just a moment to verse 12 of chapter 6, I watched as he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now I want to pause just for a moment and and, and tell you, and and you can look this up uh, I'm trying to think of where to tell you to go. Um, internet search about um, the the creation event uh, and creation science. There's a an astrophysicist who is a believer that has an interesting theory that as God created the universe, it began geocentrically. And you recall that the earth was shaped and formed before the stars. 
I don't know if you recollect that from our study of Genesis, but the earth was formed first. And his theory is that uh, the, the heavens were then flung out from the firmament above the earth, and that it was shaken out like a sheet, and the stars were flung away from the earth as God created and, and more or less cast them into space. And uh, one of the reasons for the speed of the universe is not so much that uh, we are moving away from the stars, but they moved away from us rather quickly. And uh, this is interesting in chapter 6. It could be a whole study, and I won't go there. But it's interesting in chapter 6 that at the end of time, when the elements melt with fervent heat, and the universe as we know it, essentially dissolves that the skies or the stars in the sky fall to earth and the heavens are receded like a scroll being rolled up. It's almost like God reverses the process. This may be quite literal. And you say, how in the world can a star thousands of times bigger than the earth fall to the earth? Well, you recall that at the, Peter says at the end of the time, when the elements melt with fervent heat, there will be nowhere to hide. They will run to the rocks and to the mountains and to the caves, but they will all disappear. And lost human beings will be in a condition where there, there is nowhere to go because there's nowhere to hide. Uh, there won't even be a universe with a rock to crawl behind. Everyone will be exposed to God. Anyway, uh, clearly the sixth seal is talking about the very cataclysmic end. And we're not there yet. We have three-fourths of the book of Revelation still to go. So clearly as the sixth seal is open and we see this dramatic conclusion it's a foreshadowing of events to come. And he says, The kings of the earth and the princes and the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among rocks of the mountains and called on the mountains to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? And so this is, this was their reaction to the opening of the sixth seal, was to run for cover, but eventually there was nowhere to hide. Uh, the, the chronology is a little jumbled, and that's one of the uh, facts about uh, apocalyptic literature, is that it's not necessarily a linear progression uh, of an unfolding of sequential events uh, some people have compared it instead to like a surrealistic painting in which you have elements and symbols that are somewhat uh, placed in a collage. And, and you're looking at the whole thing and you see these various elements of it. And John does give us some idea of how they fit together. But as I've said practically every week, we cannot say with absolute certainty precisely what the sequence and what each element means at this moment. 
because there are other things that need to happen in order for us to understand that. Um, just as with the first coming of Christ, there were many things that were understood, understood much more clearly in retrospect. Uh, how, can, how can he be called a Nazarite? How can he be born in Bethlehem in the city of David? And how can God call him out of Egypt? Well, we know retrospectively that all of those things were true and that they all happened. But if you look at it on the front end, you say, how can this happen? The Jews had boiled down the Jewish scholars to the idea that he would be born in Bethlehem. They knew that. They couldn't figure out necessarily the Nazarite part, and they couldn't figure out the Egypt part. Uh, But in fact, uh, in Jesus, it all came together. And so uh, in Revelation when we begin to see these things, it will all come together. Well, this is the backdrop. The sixth seal is actually the preparation of the final end in judgment. So as we go to chapter 7, John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or any tree. And, and by the way, um, I was reading in one of the commentators, and some people uh, are, have actually believed that the Bible teaches that the earth is square and has four corners based on this verse. This is an idiomatic Greek usage. Um, they no more believe that the earth was square than uh, meteorologists believe that the sun rises and rotates around the earth. We know better than that. But we still say sunrise because from our perspective it looks like sunrise. And uh, the Greek idiomatic usage viewed the, the earth, the, the way we view it is flat. They viewed the earth as, as being like a giant square uh, metaphorically. But there's also just as many biblical references to the roundness or circular nature of the earth, and so uh, don't get sidetracked by some of those kinds of terms. And then he says, I saw another angel coming from the east, that is from John's perspective, coming from Jerusalem, or from Israel, because he was west of there, and he had the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal of God on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then I heard the number of those that were sealed. There are a couple of things that I want us to take away this morning. And every week as I prepare uh, another message in Revelation, my question for God is, Lord, what is the takeaway? What is the practical personal, experiential encouragement that you want to give your people from this passage. How is this going to help you tomorrow? That's, that's my question. We can talk about the end times in a very academic way and try to draw maps and charts and diagrams and get it all figured out. And when it's all said and done, you know, we just kind of walk away from it and say, huh, that's kind of interesting. And what I really want God to do is to touch our hearts and to pull us into the heart of God and into His vision and into His passion 
so that as we connect with him in this study, he is speaking to us in a very personal way. One of the things in this chapter that we need to get a grasp upon is what it means to be sealed by God. The seal, no matter where it occurs in salvation history throughout the Scripture, the seal of God is always based upon a blood covenant that either is or points to the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And it always points to the sealing of a covenant that God makes with us with the intention that He will keep covenant with His people. And I want you to know that I'm very glad this morning that God has undertaken to keep the covenant. Jesus, the Scripture says, was entrusting Himself to no man because He knew what was in the heart of man. We're fickle. We don't necessarily mean to be... (laughs) We may not want to be, but, but we're unpredictable to a certain extent. And our character, no matter how well sanctified and refined, is still somewhat flawed until we see him face to face. But he is unchanging and unchangeable. And when he keeps covenant and takes it upon himself to keep the covenant, he is giving to us a a great assurance that he has taken us to himself in a covenant relationship, and he will never break that covenant. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, and, and, and we find that one of the first covenants that God made with believers was the covenant he made with Abraham. When you you perhaps recall that God told him to prepare a sacrifice, to prepare the animals, to cut them in half and lay them on either side of a trough so that their blood would run down into this, this ditch between them. And Abraham knew precisely what that was, that that was... Uh, a, a way that leaders and tribal leaders and kings of his day would make a covenant with each other, and then they would both walk through the ditch or the trough with the blood and get it on their feet and on the hem of their garment, and it would be a sign, a blood covenant sign between the two of them that they would honor the treaty or the, or the covenant that they had made. Abraham knew exactly what God was asking him to do. God was about to enter into a covenant with him. But after the sacrifices had been made and the blood had flowed down into the trough before Abraham could undertake to walk through the blood, he fell into a trance. And In that trance, he saw God walking through the blood. But he was never able to do so. And the reason that that happened is because God was saying to him, 
I am making this covenant with you and I am the only one responsible to keep it. I'm not going to hold you responsible. I will be responsible to keep this covenant. And I am making my covenant with you and we find as we read a little further that Abraham believed God concerning his promises and God counted it to him as righteousness. It's the first clear example of a blood covenant being established on the basis of faith. That God Himself said, if you put your trust in Me, I will undertake to seal you and keep you. That is My responsibility. When we come to the New Testament, we look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 1 And long about verse 13, we are told that we are sealed as believers by the Holy Spirit. And that that seal is a down payment, an earnest of our salvation. That God has placed a deposit in our life that is considered the seal of God. And that He will redeem us. You're familiar with that. If you go to buy a house or some other large investment in, in order to, to prove that you're serious, you put money down and you risk the forfeiture of that money if you don't follow through with the deal. And so you put down the earnest money to buy the house. And uh, while all the paperwork and everything is being completed, your money guarantees that you have the right of redemption and that you can purchase that house. And that's the seal of that commitment. And God has put a seal in our life. He's paid a down payment. He's put the earnest of the Holy Spirit in us and sealed us unto Himself. He has the right of redemption and He will follow through. That's amazing that God has undertaken to ensure our salvation through the blood of the Lamb that was shed for us and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our salvation. And so then, in Revelation, we have this other seal that... As John looks, he sees an angel coming from the east that has the seal of the living God. And the angel cries out to the four angels who have power to harm the land and sea. Do not harm the land or sea or trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. The seal of God is the guarantee that we will be brought safely to God's heavenly kingdom. And this is important, that we will never suffer His judgment or wrath against the sinful or the ungodly. We will never suffer the wrath of God. We sing a hymn, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all. The promise of our salvation and the cleansing of the blood of the Lamb of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross entirely 
washes us from all sin. You say, but let's be real. I, I still sin. I still disobey at times. I still mess up. Let's be real. I, 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 I know that since I was saved, I've still got some problems. And the scriptural teaching, the biblical teaching is that all of our sin is under the blood of the Lamb. You can trouble your relationship with God by disobeying Him. And you need to keep open accounts with Him. But judicially, and it's important that we get this, judicially, we are forgiven and cleansed and washed. The Scripture literally says, whiter than snow. And so when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, you've heard me say this many, many times, but we just have a tough time getting it in our brains. We will never face our sin. It's not going to be there. The question at the Bema seat of Christ is, how yielded were you to the Holy Spirit? To allow the eternal work of God to be accomplished through your life. Those who lived lives of total surrender in the power of the Holy Spirit will have much that survives the flame of purification. Those that somehow didn't get it who tried to do it on their own, who worked out of the flesh, so to speak, a lot of their efforts are going to be consumed by the purifying flames. But you will not face sin. It's a judgment of works in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the troubled times to come, we will never experience the wrath of God. As believers, we are sealed. And the wrath of God will never touch our lives. We really need to get a hold of this. And I think this is one of the things that inspires fear in so many people as they read about end times and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, Wow, what's that going to be like? You know, what am I going to have to suffer? All these plagues and boils and all, all this terrible stuff. You know, what, will I be subjected to that? You will never be subjected to the wrath and the judgment of God. Never. Just as Noah and his family went through the floods of judgment that killed everybody else on the planet. They remained in safe harbor within the ark and emerged unscathed, kept from the wrath of God. Just as the Israelites in the land of Goshen, as they put upon their doorpost and lintel the symbol of faith that actually looked like a cross when you think about it, as they painted the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the top and on the sides, the death angel passed over them 
and not a soul in their camp was harmed as they were protected from the judgment and the wrath of God, so will all believers be exempt from the direct wrath and judgment of God. We will never experience His wrath. It's so important that we understand this. Jesus said, we will experience tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Tribulation has troubled the church from day one. Beginning with Stephen, who was martyred for his faith. And following down through history, there have been more people martyred in our generation than in all of church history combined. There will be those who suffer tribulation for their faith. But we will never suffer the wrath of God for our faith. Put that down. (laughs) Write it in indelible ink. Write it on your hand if you have to. Put it somewhere where you won't forget it. That God will seal you against the day of wrath. And we will not experience that. Well, then we come to two very interesting groups of people. The first one is the 144,000. As John says in verse 4, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. The tribe of Judah, 12,000. Reuben, 12,000. Gad, 12,000. Asher, 12,000. Naphtali, 12,000. Manasseh, 12,000. Simeon, 12,000. Levi, 12,000. Issachar, 12,000. Zebulun, 12,000. Joseph, 12,000. Benjamin, 12,000. These... 12,000 from each of these tribes are sealed, equaling a total number of 144,000. And we ask ourselves, who are they? What does this number mean? What does it represent? Are these literal people? Is this an exact number? Are these truly the 12 tribes of Israel? And I'll tell you what, I I have read uh, as many commentators as I own, and then a few more on the internet, (laughs) as to who these 144,000 are. And uh, there are just about as many permutations as there are commentators on how that number is derived. Some say it's the number three times the number four times the number... Uh, squared times the number 1,000. Some people say it's uh, just 12 times 12. Uh, some people have other ways of deriving it. They have all these different mathematical formulas for coming up with 144,000 and the symbolic meaning of the numbers. They don't all agree on how you get there. But what they nearly all agree on is who they are. And this is very interesting Because most conservative scholarship believes that this is a symbolic number representing the entire complete church of both the Old and New Testaments. And and I want to back up and kind of explain how that is is a possibility because he says, as he talks about this number, 
first of all, the tribes that he lists differ from any other accounting of the twelve tribes of Israel in Scripture. And interestingly enough, they begin with Judah. No other accounting of the twelve tribes begins with Judah, but this one does. And Judah, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Dan is left out of this list, but another is put in. Uh, two of the families of Joseph are included, which typically are not. And so when you look at the list, there is a distinctive difference between the list in Revelation and other lists in other places in the Old Testament. And furthermore, by this point in time, ten of those tribes can't even be accounted for. John, uh, the northern kingdom, was carried away by the Assyrian ten tribes, and, and those tribes were intermingled. They became, among other things, the Samaritans. Uh, and um, they intermingled, and, and some of the offspring half-breed were Samaritan. That's why they were hated so much, among other reasons. And John knew that there was no way to account for those ten tribes. And so he's using, he's talking about a number of tribes that cannot be clearly identified anywhere in Scripture. So why these twelve that appear in a different order and in a different way than all the others? The other thing that comes up is that however you derive the total number, the final symbolic meaning is it is a complete accounting of followers of Christ. The number 12, however you get there, is the number of completion. It means the whole thing. It's settled. It's done. Everything is wrapped up. It is the completion number. And it's 12 times 12. About as complete as you can get. It is the whole group put together. And as you think about it, there are 12 tribal leaders, there are 12 apostles in the New Testament, and then there's a large multitude of people, a thousand times 144, 144,000. That's a pretty big number if you're trying to count them, one, two, three, four, you know, you can, you can spend a long time uh, trying to count that number. And there's also a connection symbolically between this 144,000 people and the New Jerusalem. And there's some illustrations I wanted to share with you about the New Jerusalem. We're going to talk about this in much greater length when we get there. But that box or cube sitting over most of the United States represents the relative size of the New Jerusalem. It is 12,000 stadia long, 12,000 stadia deep, and 12,000 stadia high. Uh, I learned many years ago that a stadia was a mile, which makes it a very big box indeed. But uh, I researched that again further this week, and it's about 180 meters, so it represents about 1,300 miles. 
So the New Jerusalem is a cube that is 1,300 miles square and 1,300 miles high. Is this a literal representation of a city, or is this another way of saying it is all wrapped up in a complete form and final package, if you please? If I could look at that next picture... Here are some representations. If you took the New Jerusalem that John sees coming down out of heaven and you placed it on the United States, it would go well into Canada, into northern Mexico. It would go from Lake Michigan all the way to the Pacific Ocean and cover approximately two-thirds or most all of the Midwest and western United States. But when you think of surface area, don't forget, this thing is 1,300 miles high. Compare that to the Sears Tower, or whatever it's called these days. Uh, 1,300 miles. We could look at the next one. Let's put this in some math that maybe is helpful. If each individual believer had personal space equivalent to 10,000 square feet, just stop a minute. How would you like to have a 10,000 square foot mansion just all for you? You know, mansions in glory. So, so everybody gets 10,000 square feet. This is not a family. This is a person, one individual. We're just taking a hypothetical number. And they get a mile high. So they get 10,000 square feet and one mile of airspace. <laughs> Talk about vaulted ceilings. That'd be pretty big. So a mile high, the actual size of the New Jerusalem would accommodate 6,864,000 people per one mile floor. In other words, every floor is a mile tall. So you have a 40-story building, here's a 40-mile building, only it's a 1,300-mile building. How'd you like to get on the elevator and go to the 1,295th floor? Wow. So if you take a mile per floor with 1,300 floors, the capacity of the New Jerusalem would be 8,932,200,000 are almost 9 billion people. How many people populate the earth right now? About 8? Somewhere between 7 and 8. They're they're born every few minutes, so it's kind of hard to keep track of the number, but there's, there's a lot of people in the world right now. But we're only talking about believers. And the population of the world today is greater than it's ever been in history because it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That's one of the problems. You know, if you just do the sheer math, that points us to the fact that the end times are getting closer and closer because we're going to run out of room. But if you take all of that into account and look at the believers of all the ages, whom Jesus said are the few, the narrow way, few are those that find it. The reality is that a city like this will more than easily accommodate all the believers of all the ages. 
So there is a symbolic connection between the completion of the New Jerusalem, 12 times 12 times 12, with 12 uh, tribes on the gates and 12 apostles in the foundation, and the 144,000 with 12 of each tribe. It's a way of saying that this is the whole church. And most conservative scholarship is in agreement with that symbolic meaning. So, you don't have to worry like the Jehovah's Witnesses, am I going to be one of the 144,000? When you put it in those terms, that's rather limited, don't you think? You don't have to worry about that. That's not the point. It's not 144,000 specific, peculiar individuals. It is a number which represents the whole church of all time. And he says, I looked, and, bef- and, and, and so this was the 144,000. And then the next group is the great multitude in white robes. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? And I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I want to go back to verse 9 and just draw. Remember I said this was a panoramic overview. The ceiling of the 144,000 or of the church begins at the beginning of the tribulation period. Because when we turn the page to chapter 8 and the seventh seal is opened and then the trumpets begin to sound, we are officially entering into a tribulation period such as has never been seen on the face of the earth before. John sees a picture of the church sealed. And then he jumps over and sees a picture of an innumerable number from every language, nation, tribe, and people. And the question is asked, who are these? And John says, you know, to the elder, you know who they are. And he said, these are the ones that have come out of the tribulation. They have safely made it through. They are safely on the other side. 
They are the redeemed of the Lamb from all the ages and all of time and every nation. They are the church triumphant. And so in chapter 7 we see a brief image at the beginning and a, and a brief image at the end. We're going to go back in chapter 8 and begin to see what happens in between. But John wants us to know that the church emerges triumphant. And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white as snow, white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. If you were in northern Africa now suffering the tremendous persecution as a believer, if you were languishing in a Chinese prison for your faith with just a bowl of gruel each day to eat and a little bit of rice, perhaps. Wouldn't these words be sweet to your ears? What a comfort. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. If you are among our brothers and sisters in other lands that are suffering forced labor, 12, 14, 16 hours a day because you have been bold in your faith in Jesus Christ. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. You remember that picture of the throne in chapters 4 and 5? You can dial back real quick for a minute. There was one upon the throne that John never quite could describe. And there was the lamb standing beside him like a lamb led to slaughter. But now where is the lamb? He's in the center of the throne. I don't know how anyone can read the scriptures and Revelation in particular and doubt the deity of Christ. He is the one in the center of the throne. And notice this amazing image. The Lamb is the shepherd. The Lamb is the shepherd. This tender, gracious, gentle, sacrificial Lamb who uttered not a word before his accusers, is our leader. He is our shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is not the only time that the phrase, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, occurs. It occurs later in Revelation in a more chronological context. 
after the great judgment, when death and hell, the Antichrist and Satan, that serpent of old, are cast into the lake of fire, and the judgment of unbelievers has been completed, as God has opened the books, and anyone whose name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There it says, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Heaven is still today a waiting place. It is a place in the presence of God where we are waiting the final redemption. We're waiting for the resurrection of our bodies, those who have gone on before uh, the coming of the Lord. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. Remember the souls under the altar. How long, Lord? How long? Before you avenge our death. How long? Just a little while longer. It's a time of waiting. There will also come a time when we will stand with the Lamb of God on the side of safety as those who have never turned their lives to Him will be judged and cast into the lake of fire. We may recognize across the bar of justice friends or family members who never would say yes to Jesus. That will be a sad moment. But God will wipe away every tear. Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not even worthy to be mentioned in the same breath as the glory that is to follow. We struggle now. Life is tough. There are hard times. Yes, there's joy. Yeah, there's good stuff too. It's a mixed bag. We have times when we can party hardy and laugh and enjoy fellowship and blessing and we can enjoy the birth of a child and we can enjoy all kinds of uh, myriad uh, good things that God gives us, but we also suffer. Life has its hard moments. No one gets out unscathed. Everyone has a story and every story includes some pain. But in the end, God will wipe away every tear. There will be no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more death. It's cast into the lake of fire. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more broken relationships. There will be no more rifts and arguments and loss. It will all be ended. And we will be together with the Lamb forever and forever in a place where there's nothing but joy eternally. Isn't that amazing? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. So what can you take with you today? You're sealed by God. You're safe in His arms. He will see you through. And in the end, He will give you His own comfort 
and fill you with joy, unending and full of glory. Whatever else may be, that is guaranteed. Praise His name for that. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.